Well, uh, last week I explored with you Peter's closing remarks to the first section of his book. The first section ends with verse 10 of chapter 2, and we saw that Peter in this final set of verses reminded us who we are and what we do. And we saw that we are both recipients and ambassadors of God's mission of mercy. And so let's live like that. That's what we spend our time. And I appeal to you quite passionately and personally to be on mission that it's my desire. And I think it's yours to have an entire flock flooding the mission of God. Like that is why we're here. And so we lay aside preferences and and personal matters to some degree. Well, we say, you know what, what is God's mission and how can we best accomplish it? And we unify around that. Well, as Peter begins his second section, he repeats himself as an on-ramp to specific ways to actually do that. I think this is how he closes the book for the next several sections. He, he lists several ways that all include difficulty and shows us how to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In fact, if you were to ask me how, uh, to what two words I would use to best describe the closing of section one and the opening of section two, which is verses 11 and 12, I would say one is a macro view, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Here's the overall view of God's people on mission. And then beginning in verse 11 and 12, he kind of, kind of gets granular. Here's one way to do that. Here's a specific way that all of us should be about the mission of God. And this applies to whether you're going over there, speaking of overseas or a faraway country, an unreached area, you're on mission that way, or whether you're on mission here in this local place. And let's be very frank. We won't be on mission over there if we're not on mission over here. Partners, missionaries don't pop up out of nowhere. They come from local churches who are on mission. They're not silver spooned. They're not bred in the laboratory. They come from your families who make the mission of God critical, valuable, important, crucial in your home, in your neighborhood, on your teams, in your clubs, in your friends. And God begins to expand that vision to the, to the global aspect. And suddenly those very people say, while the most of you will stay here and do that, I'll go over there and do it over there. And together, here and there, we, we are chasing hard. We're all in for the mission of God. One's a macro view, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. One's a micro view, a granular way we can do that here locally, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. So with that in mind, let's look at our text and let's see exactly what he's talking about. It's very repetitive to last week, but yet it's different. So we're gonna see some generalities that are the same and we're also gonna see some very specifics that are different. Let's read our text. Can we? 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Here's what God would say to us through Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So just by way of review, notice again the same three themes we see. We see our identity, we see our purpose, and we see our motivation. I'll show it to you on the slide here. Very similar to last week, but just a few differences. 
Our identity, of course, we'll explore that. We'll explore the purpose. We'll explore the motivation. In this case, the motivation is God's glory. Can we go to that slide, guys? The general slide to show how the same three things are in this same text. There we go. Thank you very much. Our identity, our purpose, our motivation. Again, different set of verses, but much the same thing. Peter's repeating himself, echoing himself. And by the way, this is in Peter's style. If you read 2 Peter, one of the uh, most used words is the word remind. So Peter's the guy that you'd say, hey, you're repeating yourself, Peter. <laughs> like, welcome to preaching, right? Like, we've heard this before, but he's again doing this here. He said much the same thing in 9 and 10 in a macro way. Now he's gonna show how this plays out in a micro granular way. So let's explore this through our lab this morning. And I wanna show you the identity, the purpose, and the motivation, yet with its distinct differences. Notice, first of all, he says this. He calls them, regarding who we are, he calls them beloved, he calls them sojourners, and he calls them exiles. You notice that? He also, in one sense, calls them soldiers because what are they doing? They're fighting against the flesh, which is waging war against them. Now, to these people who are strangers and, and sojourners, I, I kind of call them traveling warriors. It's kind of the phrase I'm kind of putting in my head. This is similar to chapter one in which he called them strangers and exiles, but he's saying you're loved even though you're traveling through an area in which you don't belong. You're traveling to your real heavenly home with God. And so you're a, you're a, you're a stranger here, you're traveling. And while you're traveling, there's this, this war that's being waged against your soul. So he says to us, abstain or to keep away, to resist passions of the flesh. Very interesting that the sinful lusts which come at us from the outside and then which prompt those same evil lusts inside of us, he says we're to resist them. We're to abstain from them. We're not to participate. And this makes sense. We're travelers. We're sojourners. We don't belong here. So let's not give in to this agenda, this culture, this this. Um, um, uh, sinful desire that comes at us and then is fed from what's already within us, our sinful nature, he says clearly, abstain from those passions of the flesh. Because, watch this, they wage war against your soul. I'm intrigued by that word because he doesn't say that the effect of the war that's being waged against us, both externally and internally, he doesn't say it affects our body or off the bat, does he? We often think, man, if I do that, it's, you know, I'm gonna be embarrassed or I'm gonna suffer an external consequence. Peter says here, the first effect is inward. And I think that's one reason people don't take this more seriously because they don't see visible effects quickly. They think, I guess this isn't really bothering me. I guess I can engage in these sins. No one seems to be noticing. I think I'm doing okay but the whole time their soul is being ravaged and destroyed because they're not resisting the passions of the flesh. Now, let's be very frank here. Often when we see this, we tend to, and rightly so, start with sexual temptation. That's not a wrong place to start. And so let's be very clear here. Pornography, fantasizing, emotional affairs, lusts, those things will destroy your soul, acting on them in adulterous fashions, being unfaithful in your marriage, 
committing fornication, which is sexual sin when you're not married, adultery, sexual sin when you are married. These things will destroy your soul. So I don't think it's wrong to realize he's starting with this idea of passions of the flesh, sinful lusts and desires that, that, yes, are fed to us from the outside, but also are fed to us from the inside, our own sinful nature, this flesh that we have, that we live in. But can I be very frank with you? The word sexual, or even perhaps the implication that this is all sexual is just not in the text. I don't think it's a wrong place to start, but I think perhaps what Peter's mainly aiming for is selfish temptation. The desire to get our way at all costs. I mean, is that not what our flesh craves? You can nod here. You can be vulnerable with your pastor and say, that's me, because I'll be vulnerable with you. That's my life. I have to fight selfishness at every turn to leverage relationships, to uh, manipulate, to work a corner, to do an end around. I'm all, it seems like sometimes my, my number one temptation is, what can I do to make sure I get my way in this? Now, I don't think I'm the only guy in the room that thinks that or works or struggles with that. That's the passion of the flesh. It's not wrong to say that it has a sexual expression because sexual sin is selfishness at its core. But sexual sin is not the only kind of sin in which we see passions of the flesh or wrong desires within us uh, creeping up. For instance, workaholism, greed, materialism, narcissism, these too destroy our soul. And so I think the point may well be here to abstain and resist selfish passions of all types, the kinds of lusts that destroy our inner man in the end. Church, in the plainest of language, resist and refuse to make your life all about you. Whether it's involving sex, your schedule, your budget, or your body, if you do that, it is soul suicide. Let me offer you one way to practice not making your life all about you. When you're here in this building with other Christians, would you commit to welcoming and looking for people who are new that you don't know and making sure that they are getting assimilated, welcomed, invited to a group? Will you, will you make your hour and... 30 minutes here about someone else and not yourself. That's a pretty small bar, by the way, pretty low bar, right? And in all frankness, I think this is an area that we can grow in. I think every church has to consistently review this idea of being a, a welcoming, friendly, it's more about you than me kind of church. I typically address it from the internal, external perspective that once our vision is limited to this room and it's the back of the auditorium that we're trying to reach, then we're, we're as good as dead. Our vision must be, must be outside of this building. But the same thing is true inside this building when it comes to folks that, that show up that are new or that folks are struggling to get acclimated and assimilated. You know, not everyone's an extrovert. And the church said what? In fact, most people aren't extroverted. 
And when they walk into a space, which is really large, which we thank God for, and then they see huddles of people, most people have this thought, how do I break into that? And can I be frank with you? Some of my conversations have been, it's been hard to break into huddles. So can we move from this? I don't think it's ill-intentioned. I think you're just seeing your friends and, and that's not sinful, but it may not be as selfless as you think. Can we move from this to this? Can we actually intentionally look for people who are struggling to get connected? Maybe they've been here a few weeks, a few months. Maybe they've been here even a few years, but they still feel like they're in the shadows on the outside. And you can always point and say, well, you should have done that, or why didn't you do that? Why don't we just take a minute and say, what else could I do to help someone who's new? How can I make their needs more important than my own? If just for an hour and a half, we could practice not making it all about us my sense is that when you leave, you may find an hour in the week to do the very same thing that may turn into two hours. You may find that your life is beginning to be more about other people as a general rule. And that would be a great thing because you're waging war against selfish passions which want to destroy your soul. I'm just asking us to start with a small thing. Would you help me with that? Will you look for people you don't know, maybe someone you don't recognize? In fact, do what I do. I just say, hey, I don't think I know your name. And you know what? When I say that, I've never had anyone say, well, what kind of pastor are you? In fact, I think people appreciate vulnerability and transparency and honesty. Like, I'm pretty human. I meet a lot of new people. I see a lot of new faces. And to be frank with you, I don't remember your name. Could you just refresh my memory? And they're often very glad to do that. I've never had anybody embarrass me or, or accuse me. So I just want to encourage you, if you see someone you don't know, don't turn and say, I'll avoid them. Just lean into the situation and let's refresh and kind of reset even our commitment to being a welcoming, friendly, watch this, selfless, others-centered congregation. We're seeing a lot of new people pour in. Let's make sure that continues to happen and they get connected and plugged in and assimilated for the good of their spiritual growth. And at the same time, we'll see ourselves grow as we resist the urge to make our life only about us. So this is who we are. We're traveling warriors. We don't belong here, and yet the folks, are, uh, the, the system around us is leaning in to make it really hard, to make it, to us to live like it's all about us. And he's saying, resist that, abstain from that. Your love, you're traveling through, this is not your final home. So stand strong and, and resist this tendency to make it all about you. He then moves now to this, Next statement, which I think really fits the flow of things. Let's look at what he says next. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Notice he, he mentions first like a negative, don't do this. Like abstain, resist. Now he moves to a positive. Here's what you should do. This is what we're about, whereas the first one's more about who. And we're to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see our good deeds. Notice the word good here and the word honorable is the same word in the text. It's the word agathos. It means intrinsically authentic and right, wholesome, pure. No, there's no, there's no ulterior motive. There's no um, outside forcing in to, to try to uh, you know, corrupt it. We're to keep our conduct. Here the word is behavior. Some of your translations may say, conversation. It means your way of life. And we're to maintain this. The sense of the word keep is that they were doing this and Peter's encouraging them to keep this up. 
Keep resisting, keep abstaining from those who want to make your life all about you and instead focus on doing good deeds among those who are not yet believers. That's what he uses for the word Gentiles. And so he says, keep your conduct intrinsically, authentically good. This kind of behavior is so loud as to who we are that it says that even when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll actually see what you do and change their mind. Now, here's the sense of this text as I read it. That someone with their language cuts you open. They tear you because they're sure you're working something from an angle. You've got an ulterior motive. You're doing something out of the wrong motives and the, and the wrong reasons. So they come at you verbally. They cut you. They rip you. They want to expose you. But when they do, suddenly they realize, wow, what's on the inside is exactly what we see on the outside. That your um, good deeds are actually coming from a good seed, which is God's seed. And the text here says that they change their mind then. Now that's a powerful set of good works. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, this is a powerful moment when someone comes at you verbally to slander you, to malign you, to say you're really doing evil. And when they cut you open verbally, what they find is no, they're actually not. What I see on the inside is the same as I see on the outside. Wow, there's an intrinsically authentic good on the outside and the inside. And it's not from us, it's from God. Which is why he then closes with this. They glorify God on the day of visitation. This is really the why for the what and the who. Why do we resist and abstain and then engage in good conduct and good deeds? Why do we live right as strangers and exiles traveling through this uh, war that we're in? Why do we do that? So that those who see us will glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, we do what we do horizontally so that a result happens vertically. Now, if I were to put this into a, uh, a preachery form using alliteration, which you know I love words, I would say we see three things here. There's holy character, with honorable conduct that results in humble conversion. This is what I draw from the phrase, glorify God on the day of visitation. And you may say, Todd, how do you draw humble conversion from glorify God on the day of visitation? Great question, glad you asked, because there is some disagreement on this phrase. Some see this phrase as indicating this universal acknowledgement that, okay, the Christians were right all along. Jesus is God. He's Lord. You win the war, so to speak. I don't think this is referring to that. Three quick, quick reasons why. In the text, there is no definite article in front of the uh, label, the day of visitation. This could easily and rightly read to glorify God on a day of visitation. Second of all, the word glorify here is used 61 times in the New Testament. Not a single time is it used to describe lost people praising God. Not a single time. Lastly, this word visitation, I think it doesn't describe an ultimate time of judgment. 
I think it describes moments when God visits, perhaps for judgment, but it could be for, for salvation. This word's used in Luke 19 to describe the coming of Christ. I should say the first coming of Christ, to be more clear. And in Luke 19, Christ is expressing his sorrow that Jerusalem missed their day of visitation. It's the word used. In other words, I came to offer you salvation, to, to bring the goodness of the gospel that you would hear and be saved, and instead you turned a deaf ear to me. He says, you missed your day of visitation. It was a moment when Christ came to save. I think what this is speaking of here, to be honest with you, is those moments when God's spirit visits people in conviction to bring about repentance so they would trust and they'd be saved because they saw that the honest testimony in both word and deed of a believer who's abstaining from making their life all about them, involving themselves in good works and good deeds, and that shows up in the life of an unbeliever and they're moved by that. They say, wow, this, this God thing is real and God visits them in conviction and they repent and believe it's the day of visitation for them. That's what I think is going on in this text. We can disagree on that and remain good friends. Amen, church? Thank you. But after some pretty good pondering and three really good reasons, I tend to land on the sense that, that Peter's saying here, man, resist the selfish passions of the flesh. Live with good deeds that are intrinsically pure in front of others so they see God in action. And then when those moments merge and people see the validity and beauty of the gospel at work in your life, they may, as well, they may believe as well. In fact, I would bring you one more fourth proof. I think an example of this is 1 Peter 3. When he says to unbelieving wives, live submissively with your husband so that they may be one without a word. It sounds to me like if they do good deeds and resist making life all about them, there's a point in time when their husband will see that and without even a nagging witness, they'll be brought to Christ because God will visit them in conviction and bring them to faith. In other words, church, hear this well. God works through your works. Now, sometimes those of us in the Reformed camp, we can almost make the word work out to be like a cuss word. I'll just be frank with you. We avoid it like the plague most of the time, right? But in all frankness, God has ordained us for good works. He's prepared them in advance for us to do. And did you know he actually works through our works? We don't produce the works. So here I go again, showing you how to reform them, right? We don't produce the works. We don't manufacture them. We're surely not saved by them. They don't earn us favor or merit, but let's be scriptural as possible. Our works are used by God to bring about his work. And this is where the practical aspect of, I would say, local missions really comes into play. We do want to be a church sending for God's mission without a doubt. But most of you will not be sent. Most of you will be senders. So while you're here sending, here's the granular micro aspect of how we're living on mission. We live good lives. I don't mean good to earn favor with God or to earn salvation, but intrinsically pure and wholesome lives that that they're, they're not, we're not working an angle. We're not trying to manipulate or leverage. We honestly are just living out what we know to be true. What's on the inside is coming out on the outside. 
And then we're living that in front of people who don't know Christ and they see that and there are moments in their life when God will visit them because of your works to bring them his work. That's how most of you should be living. Now, when I say that, what I'm saying is those who are sent should still live this way where they go, right? Amen, church? So when I say most of you, I'm not giving you a pass to not live this way. I'm just trying to show you that there's not like two things happening here. Well, there are those who are on mission and those who aren't. That's not true. We need an entire flock flooding the mission of God. And the church said, every one of us, but some of you will do that in faraway places because of access reasons. We wanna be great senders for you. And some of you will not be those. You'll be in the sender crowd. And to you, this is the micro granular way you're to live on mission. This is how you, in a specific way, obey versus unintend, declaring the excellencies of him because you're gonna live your life for other people, not just yourself. And when they suspect you and accuse you and cut you open verbally to find out, is this legit? They realize, wow, you bleed on the, you're bleeding what you've said. Like, you're consistent. It could be that in that moment, God will visit them and they would follow Jesus too. I got an email from one of our members just last Thursday describing this very principle. Listen to this email. I retired from home health nursing last year. I had a patient, and I won't mention her name in this message, but she mentions the name in, my, in the email. She says, I had a patient who was a patient for 20 years, and she was extremely sad when I retired. God laid it on my heart to continue seeing her as a friend, though, so I've been seeing her approximately once a month. This past March, she asked me if I would do a Bible study with her. She's physically handicapped, cannot use any of her extremities. In fact, over the years, I had talked to her some about God, but she was only interested in praying when she had a need. Anyway, one of our elders, Ed Gregory, gave me a digital Bible study for new believers that she can use and what's interesting is that she had only memorized John 3, 16 and believed in Jesus, she says, when she was a child, but she told me that's all she ever knew for all these years. And now she told me she's loving the weekly Bible study and loves learning more about Jesus. All from a retired nurse in our church saying, I'll just keep coming by once a month. I mean, that's Matthew 5, 16. That's 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. That's letting your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's all that is. I love the fact that that nurse, now retired, is on mission, aren't you? So can we just put this in an equation form for our engineers and mathematicians? We're gonna stay in the text. I wanna just use the board one more time. I'm gonna repeat the alliteration. This is probably a good, simple way to remember it. Holy character, I'll just initialize it for now. You may kind of see this coming, plus honorable conduct equals what? Humble conversion. And we don't know when God's gonna visit in conviction and bring folks to faith. That's why we must really resist and abstain from making our lives just all about me, whether it's sexually or with our schedule, like I said, we resist this selfish temptation to make it all about ourselves because we never know when 
a selfless act will be what God uses to bring someone to faith in Christ, to bring them to the realization they need the gospel. And your work will be one of the ways God uses to showcase his ultimate work on their behalf. So church, let's test your memory. Can you say it with me? Holy character plus honorable conduct equals what? Humble conversion. But for the rest of us who aren't mathematicians or engineers, here's our take-home truth. If you like words, here's what we're saying again this week, much like last week. Again, these are very repetitious couplets of verses, 9 and 10, 11 and 12, somewhat similar. He's closing out, telling us who we are and what we do. He's opening up the next section, who we are and what we do. And he's saying this time, let's live like who we are, a people of holy character and honorable conduct for God's glory. Will you say this with me, church? Let's live like who we are, a people of holy character and honorable conduct for God's glory. You see, this is the kind of people who rally and mobilize for the mission of God. Yes, both here and there. I've never met a person who's living with holy character and honorable conduct who begrudges giving to help send more people to unreached areas. Never met a one. You know why they're generous? Because they're resisting and abstaining from passions of the flesh. And so they're generous. They know they're not gonna go, but they sure wanna send those who can. And so it's a working together. It's a, it's a synchronizing of those who are here and there together flooding the mission of God. This is the kind of disciple who lives holily and honorably for the sake of those who've yet to come to Christ. Again, that's a selfless mindset. They wage war against selfishness. They pursue selflessness, all with the aim of seeing God's beauty radiate in who they are and what they do. And the result, stories like Lauren's. Maybe Lauren's in this service, I don't know. But Lauren's mom called the office a few months ago. I don't live in Ankeny. But she called the office asking for some help to move her daughter into DMAC. And we didn't know the mom and we didn't know Lauren. I believe Julie Day took the call initially. Sent word to the staff, hey, anybody available on a Friday, we have an opportunity to help. And somehow Natalie McFarlane got involved and there's some names of other folks and I don't know all the names, so please don't be offended by my lack of memory, okay? But the office talk was circulating, how can we help? And then some other folks got involved. Anyway, on that Friday, some folks met a complete stranger and her daughter at the apartment to help her unload her stuff. It took 30 minutes, I think. Next thing you know, Lauren shows up at Campus Collective, engages in conversation with people, hears the gospel, trusts Christ, and just last March was baptized right over there. Catch this, church, and I'm all for proclaiming the gospel from the pulpit, but Lauren's story started with a good work from a right heart from people who said, we're gonna resist the urge to get one more hour to ourselves and we'll give it to a stranger. And look what God did. He visited Lauren and she responded in repentance and faith and there's a new sister in Christ at First Family. Amen? Amen. So can we just agree we want to be an entire flock flooding the mission of God here 
and there. There are no exemptions. You can't say to me, Todd, I'm not going over there. So hey, back off. I'll say 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. This is the deepest passion of your pastor's heart. This is the commitment I've made before the Lord and to our elders that I will lead this church to be all about the mission of God, seeing folks come to Christ and discipled so they become disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. I'm leaning on that wall with everything I've got and I'm asking you without shame to lean the ladder of your life on that wall too. To live honorably, holily, so those who watch your life will see that God is real and that when he visits them in conviction, they would trust him. What do you say? Let's live like who we are. Amen, church? Let's pray together. Let's bow our heads, can we? Oh, Holy Spirit, I'm so far from so much of this. In my head, it makes sense, and my heart is there. But my life, there are times, Lord, I am very selfish. And God, I just ask you to forgive me. I know that you will because of the blood of your Son. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, continue to empower me to resist and abstain from the passions of my flesh which want me to make my life all about me. And God, I don't want to go down that road of suicide to my soul. I don't want that. So God, would you also by your spirit empower me to live in front of unbelievers in an authentic, intrinsically good way that is not driven by ulterior motives, but instead just a desire to see them come to faith. And God, would you do that in my heart and the hearts of those who are in this church, in the hearts of those who are, who are planning to be sent to be on mission in other places? Lord, would all of us rally around this thought that we are to declare your excellencies. We're to desire for folks to glorify God on their day of visitation. God, I pray you would continue to infect us with your passion for every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. And quite frankly, God, in our neighborhoods, we are living next to many different nations, tribes, and tongues. We don't have to go very far anymore. They're right around us. God, give us a heart for your mission in every place. Here, there, everywhere. God, I beg you. I plead with you for our church during this month of prayer as we focus on the things that are difficult and how they're being used by you and our conformity to Christ, God, would you do all of that so that we are 100% in, no matter the cost or consequence to your mission. And God, my heart longs to see an entire flock flooding your mission. I'm gonna hold on to that. But I promise to lead towards that hell or high water. Lord, give us a body who will make your passion our mission. Church, with that, just massaging your heart with this text weighing on us, 
Can we begin to prepare to remember the most selfless act ever exhibited? And that was Christ giving his life for us. I mean, there is no other example that surpasses that one of someone being selfless. Of in the garden, even actually praying, Lord, can this cup pass for me? And yet resisting the devil's temptation in those moments. And then pouring out his life for the salvation of all who would believe. That's our motivation. There's the fuel for your tank. Man, just pull up to the, to the gospel and then, and then fill up. Then when you drive away from that fuel station, you'll have the energy and the power to live selflessly, not selfishly. So church, the tables are around me. If you are a believer, you belong to Jesus. And this morning, you'd like to remember his death with us in this family meal, we'll call it. Then let's take a few moments. Let's go to the tables around us. Let's get the elements. Let's come back to our seat. And I'll lead you through those as one body. So Lord, honor this time with continued conviction a continued posture of prayer mixed with a continued deepening joy that we have the privilege while we're traveling through this earth on our way to our true heavenly home to be on mission for you. What a privilege to be an ambassador for and recipient of your mercy. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.